Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This week is Parsha's Re'e, and one of the mitzvahs in this week's Parsha is the mitzvah of Berchus Hamazin, of benching. So I wanted to talk about the halachas of Berchus Hamazin. And we can divide it into three categories. We can title them where, when, and how. So let's begin with the first category, where. Where is benching? Where do you have to bench? So benching needs to be done in the place where you ate. Now, this is not limited to the actual seat on the table where you were. That really doesn't make a difference. The only thing that's important is that you should bench in the same room where you ate, anywhere in that room, as long as it's the same room, even if it's a tremendous room, like a chas in a hall. You could have eaten on one side, and you can bench all the way on the other side. That's fine, as long as it's the same room. If, for whatever reason, you can't bench in the same room, for example, there might be a child with a dirty diaper, when you suddenly, which you suddenly realize in the middle of benching, so you want to run to a different room, or any other reason why you can't stay in that room, you can go to an adjacent room, provided that you still see the place where you ate from that room. So let's say if you ate in your kitchen, you can go into your living room or dining room, and you can still see the kitchen through the doorway, you can bench in the living room or dining room as well. That's number one. If you mistakenly left the room or even left the house before benching and started to drive somewhere, and then you recalled that you need to bench, the chatzchila were required to go back to our house where we ate and bench. That's a mitzvah chatzchila, and the Gemara says that someone who does that um, gets tremendous char. The Gemara talks about how someone who did that got found a, a golden bird. Um, but regardless, if it is a shatat chak, like you're late to work or some other kind of similar situation, carpool, whatever it is, you can't really turn around. So then you can bench where you are. And likewise, if you would turn around, by the time you get home, 72 minutes will have passed and you'll miss the chance to bench. So then, again, you should bench wherever you find yourself. If you have more bread to eat, then you have another option that instead of going back to where you you ate, you can continue to eat in the new place. You can wash and eat in the new place. And even though you don't eat a kezayit, you can bench the chachila, right? So if you have uh, part of your sandwich left, you can just go to the, uh, you know, like, you know, you went somewhere to eat lunch and then you took your sandwich with you and then you realized you didn't bench. So you can just finish the sandwich where you are, though you would have to wash and, perhaps make a mix again, as we'll see in a second, but regardless, you can finish eating it, even if those snickers are and then bench where you are. Now, do you have to make how much? Do you have to wash again? So it depends. If you, when you finished and left, you totally were finished eating and you weren't planning on eating anymore, then you do need to make a new bracha and you have to wash as well. But otherwise, if you actually were planning on eating, then you don't. So, if you were planning on continuing eating somewhere else, so then your hamaytzi extends to that new place. You don't lose the hamaytzi when you go from one place to the next. And uh, you could just continue eating as long as you were, you know, careful and washed your hands, washed your hands, and you don't have to wash again. Now, let's say you want to do this l'chatzchila, right? You want to start eating in one place, and you want to continue, finish your meal somewhere else. That's just the habit. L'chatzchila, you want to do that. You want to plan it that way. Like, for example, you were invited to someone else for dessert. So then you're supposed to have that in mind when you wash and make hamaytzi that you're planning on continuing the meal in the second place. 
uh, again, and you're going to eat some bread in the second place so that it's l'chachila to bench there. So as long as you had in mind when you washed and when you made hamaytzi that you're going to eat part of your meal here and part of your meal in the second place, eat bread in the second place, and then you can do the l'chachila. Or if the purpose for going to the second place is for a mitzvah, like for Sheva Brachas, it's also permitted. So those are two situations where l'chachila, you can start your meal in one place, end it in somewhere else, and then bench there. This halacha is not limited to benching. It's inc- it includes things which are mezainas as well when they are made of the five grains, not like rice cakes, but anything that's made out of wheat or barley, oats. And there too, you need to make alamichya in the same room that you ate with all the halachas as explained by bread. One thing I'm just going to throw in, which is directly connected to this, but it's important to know that although women don't create zimun by themselves, which means that if three women eat together, they are not obligated to make a zimun. They don't say, uh, Rabbi said we should bench, have, you know, nevarech, um, uh, etc. They don't say all the whole introduction to benching. But if women are by a meal where three men ate and they became obligated in zimun, so like by a bris or, or anytime you have a suda, a big suda where there's three men and they're going to be make zimun, then women who are there are also obligated to respond to that zimun. They become obligated. So then they, they, everybody has to be by the table when benching begins so that they can respond. That's the where. Now let's talk about the when. So no matter how little bread was eaten, one can still bench up to 72 minutes from when they finish eating. So you always have 72 minutes from when you finish eating. Now, if a person ate a lot until they were satiated, so then they can, can they are allowed to bench as long as they feel full, which means they they still feel like they ate. Not just that you're not hungry, but it means like you actually feel the food still. So then you can still bench. If a person became full on other things, like for example, you ate a slice of bread, but really you got full because you ate chicken and you ate rice and all those other things, as long as that's all part of the food that all counts, and you can therefore bench until the point comes that you don't feel full anymore. That's the when. That's the time span you have to bench. Now, three, how? how what is the proper procedure of benching? So the Mechaber says, Mishokhanar, says, benching should be done because rum. So Mechaber, the Mishokhanar says you should do that if you're being mighty other people, if people are listening to you. But Mishabura says, really, it should always be done in a raised voice. Why? Because that helps us have Kavana. And we know that to be a fact, that the, the louder we say something, the more we focus on what we're saying, the more we pay attention. And the lower we say it, the more likely we are to mumble and to, to daven it up. He also writes that if a person is a Yerushamayim, they should always bench from within a sitter. They should always use a bencher or a sitter. Um, and their uh, hate on Osan Shulchan Aruch says that there's no, um, there's no say, so fit, an end of say in benching because someone who's careful with benching, who benches with kavana and slowly and from within a sitter, will be saved from apt from the anger of Hashem. So there's tremendous segulah when benching properly. And a couple of years ago, Shabbos Shuvai spoke about this at length, and this was something Rav Shach would always suggest to people, that they should bench from within a sitter, no matter what problem you came to him with. This was his suggestion, bench from within a sitter. Baruch Hashem, many people took it on that year, and they came to me a year later that they, they took it on, and they, they've kept it the whole year, and they even went out of their way to make sure that they can uh, they can 
they can bench from a sitter. And one person even told me, based on a, a story that I had said, that he uh, was found himself in a, in a plane and he didn't have a phone and he didn't have a sitter. So he actually wrote out benching from memory so that he can afterwards bench from a uh, from a bencher that he wrote out. That was that was nice. Serious message. Now, if someone asks you a question while you are benching, so the Mishnah Brewer says, and really the Mechaber seems to allude to this, that benching is equivalent to Shemayna Esrei. It's even more stringent than Kriyashma. In the middle of Kriyashma, if a person asks you a question, you're allowed to answer, believe it or not. Between Shema and Bahayim Shemayim, you can answer. But if a person asks you a question, you can't answer at all, unless he's threatening your life. So he says that it's benching has the same status. We see it's given more stringency than even Kriyashma. What is his proof that it's given more stringency from the next halacha? There's halacha, you need to sit while you're benching. When a person says Kriyashma, he doesn't have to sit. He can stand in one place. He doesn't have to sit down. But benching, you're supposed to sit down because that demonstrates hachna'a. It demonstrates humility. And that's the way we're supposed to bench. It's a, it's a real avoida benching. It's a real something we're supposed to really put work into. Uh, some say that this applies to al-mikhi as well. Not everybody agrees with that, but, but benching, for sure, the Mechaber says a person needs to sit. And if someone is traveling and simply won't be able to concentrate while sitting because they're on that rush and they're in the way, so you can bench walking. But otherwise, you, you, a person is supposed to bench sitting. Additionally, this is not limited to benching. This is by all brachas. You can't do anything while benching and other brachas as well. And this is sometimes a big nisayin, not to uh, whether it is answers, answer text, or, or, or just a motion to people and to reply with oohs and ahs and ams and it's really a serious thing in the middle of benching or, or any bracha we're not allowed to do any of those things moving on to the parashas parashas re there's a very very interesting mitzvah we find in this parasha I've spoken about it in the past and it's really important to remind ourselves about this every so often and the, the, the mitzvah is a source brought to the issue the concept of tipping, of giving a tip when someone gives you a service. The mitzvah that is associated with tipping is the mitzvah of Ha'anaka. Ha'anaka is a mitzvah which applies to an Evid Ivri. When someone had a Jewish slave, which he could have acquired in a number of ways, let's say the simple case that Terry gives is that this man stole and is now working as an indentured servant to pay off his debt of stealing because he didn't have the money. So he was an avid ivory, he's treated very specially, he's treated very elegantly, you know, he's given due respect, it's not like a slave, but nevertheless, he worked and he worked for six years. And at the end of six years, there's a mitzvah to give him gifts, anaka, give him gifts. And the Torah doesn't specify the exact amount you need to give, but the Gemara does discuss it. And the Gemara says you have to give three different kinds of things, from livestock, from oil, and from wine, and from grain. And in each one of them, the Gemara says the minimum tip uh, is quite significant. It's a quite significant amount. It's not a percentage-wise, the way we do tips nowadays, but it's, a, it's a, actually a standardized amount, which is quite substantial. So we have to understand something. This slave technically is being paid in full for all his work. After all, he's working to pay up the debt. So he's being paid. He's not working for free. Or sometimes a slave is someone who sold himself to make money for whatever it is he wanted to buy or whatever he needed the money for. So he, it, this is paid work. It's called a slave. It's really a worker. So yet there's an obligation to give more, to give a gift. And why, why is there such an obligation? 
the Chinuch explains that the point of this mitzvah is so that we should acquire elevated and precious character traits. Our beauty, he says, uh, I'm quote, uh, quoting kind of, the beauty and uh, magnificence as a nation is our mida of Rachmanis, of mercy, and chesed, of kindness. And therefore, he writes, we should give someone who worked for us something more than just what we're obligated to pay him for his work, something more, something as a chesed, besides what we made up to pay him. And the Chenoch says, this is self-understood concept. No need to expound anymore, he says. Everybody understands this. The Chenoch goes on to say that likewise nowadays, he says, we don't have avid ivories, we don't have these indentured servants, but any time a person works for you, whether it's a lot or a little, you should pay him something extra. There you go. So it's a source from a mitzvah and the Tyra to give a tip. The Tyra source for the modern-day concepts of tipping. I saw an article written by Rabbi Zweig where he gives the following insight into this mitzvah beautifully. He writes that if we analyze the modern-day concept of tipping, we can understand what the rationale is. Why is it that the accepted practice is to tip for certain services and others it's not? For example, if a person checks in his luggage curbside, he leaves a tip with the person who schleps the luggage, right? But if he checks in a, a waiter in a restaurant, he leaves a tip. But if a person checks in his luggage at the counter, he doesn't tip the attendant. If you go to a store and the salesman helps you, you don't tip the salesman, right? Um, a barber, you give a tip, but not a cashier. So what's the concept here? And the reason is as follows. When someone does a personal service to us, to a certain extent, that person has been demeaned. In other words, if they are serving us, if they're doing something which is kind of a, a woeful, but it's a woeful slavery, they're doing menial labor for us. So then it's a personal service, and therefore we tip. And that through the tip, we restore the dignity to the person serving us. Yes, the person is being paid for his job, but that is what we're obligated that payment for the job. But there's that kind of loss of dignity by the fact that he is being forced to do this for the money so we give them extra to demonstrate that we appreciate for what that person has done for us and we appreciate that person as a person we're giving back their dignity through this tip the the Torah requires that we give parting gifts to this Jewish slave because for six years they that that servant the slave has been at our beck and call and he gave us total personal service one Jew can give another and therefore we're obligated to do something to restore his dignity that you're you're a man you're a person and you're entitled to more than just what you, what you did, what you worked for. And now, with that, it can be explained why the Torah uses this such a very unique verb. Like I said, this mitzvah is called ha'anaka, which does mean a gift, but the typical word used to give a gift is titain, you give. Why ha'anaka? And Rashi explains that the word ha'anaka comes from a noun, anaka, which is jewelry, a necklace. So this kind of gift is a very specific kind of gift. You're giving someone jewelry, an adornment, because that's what jewelry is all about. Jewelry is something extra. Jewelry elevates a person. It gives them dignity. It makes them feel royal. And that's the function of this gift, which is given to the Jewish slave. We're attempting to restore the dignity that was lost by his years of personal service. 
Rabbi Belsky's hotel was once asked if there's an obligation to tip. And the questioner had been by a Jewish hotel, and he had tipped the waiters and the busboys. And they complained to him about some many people that didn't tip. And this does seem to be, unfortunately, I, I think it's just a lack of awareness that people don't tend to be aware of how much tips are expected, expected and how much tips are appreciated. And um, there's a lack of that awareness and also of a lack of, like what I, we just spoke about, that the Torah really requires it. People don't tend to tip. But nevertheless, the fact is, many people don't tip. And when he approached the people to, to re- bring to their attention that they're not tipping, this man was, you know, they gave him pushback. They're upset. So he went to Ravelsky and he asked Ravelsky, did I do the right thing? Is this a real obligation? Was I right for kind of giving them Musar for not tipping? And Ravelsky quoted a fascinating Gemara. And Masechus Megillah, the Gemara says there that when people came to Yerushalayim on Yom Tevim and they needed a place to sleep, they were Eile Regal, right? Everybody left their home and they came to Yerushalayim. Did they stay in a hotel? They did. And all the hotels had to be free because Yerushalayim kind of belongs to all all of our, all of all of Jews and every innkeeper was obligated to give people a free hotel stay. Yet the Gemara says, nevertheless, although they couldn't charge for the hotel stay, everybody was obligated to give a certain extra items that they had to their innkeepers. What was it? It was the like when they drank wine, they would buy a barrel of wine and use it for the whole yanta. They were obligated to give the barrel to the owner. It had a value. They were obligated, obligated to give the skins of the animals that they shafted for Kabanis to the, to the innkeeper. And they, because they couldn't charge rent, true, and because everybody had a right to stay there, but it was a tip. It was a tip. They provided you a service. And the Gemara makes it kind of straightforward obligation. Yeah, you, the, the, the innkeepers could even take it from the guests against their will. And this, some could be quite considerable. And the Gemara learns, says from that a fascinating thing. The Gemara says that we learn from this practice that you should always leave a tip for your innkeeper. Even if you are paying for your hotel stay, you should still leave a tip for your innkeeper. And again, it's the same concept because they're servicing you. They're doing personal service. They're making your bed for you. They're cleaning up for you after you leave. We need to restore their dignity by giving them this tip. The, to summarize, the, the obligation to give a tip stems from three fundamentals in Yiddishkeit. Number one, it's chesed and it's rachmanis. It's simple, uh, just plain kindness to give a person a little bit more. It means so much to people when whatever they make is what they make and sometimes it's not so much and the tip really makes a big difference to them. Secondly, it's hakar It's really a true way to show appreciation for the personal service that this person has rendered for us and restores the person's dignity, treating him like a mensch. And number three, even in cases where it's not a full obligation, it's their meaning to say it's something which the world views as expected decent behavior. And that also is so important of all things to for that, that we should ob- observe that and therefore act in a way that Jews are expected to act and to to be to have their heart. Tipping is expected by servers and employees. And again, this has been has been brought to my attention by, by different people that have worked in, in food establishment business that 
you know, people really lack this this awareness of the need to tip, and often, unfortunately, that non-Jews are more aware of the need to tip, and sometimes Jews are less aware, and that then that creates a chil Hashem. If if the non-Jews are tipping and the Jews are not. And if we do tip, we show ourselves as compassionate, decent, moral people, and thus we make a Kiddush Hashem. Have a wonderful, uh, good night and a wonderful Shabbos.